the words that you were just wanting to speak to us. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Dean. Um, it's, it's a real privilege always to get to share the word at Hope City Church. And so thank you. And um, I'm hoping today that, yeah, we will learn something new or be illumined about something perhaps we didn't uh, already know about God. Uh, before we begin, just a couple of um, things I wanted to say. First off, just wanted to really encourage you uh, to plug into one of the home groups. We've managed to get them in person, which is amazing. And as a church, we've just always really felt that discipleship is where it's at. You know, it's, church is a, about a lot more as you all know, than just attending a building every Sunday. It's about life-on-life discipleship. So I really want to encourage you, if you haven't already signed up to a group or you you don't plan to attend one, I just ask you to think about that this week and consider that, bring that in prayer to the Lord and, um, and consider whether you might want to get involved with one of those groups. We've currently got one in Newbridge, which is my mum and dad's group, which started last week. And we got one in Compton, which is my uh, in-laws one, Mike and Sue. That starts not this week, but the week after on the 6th, Wednesday the 6th. Um, and I just wanted to really encourage you to, to plug in. We hope to have another one starting in Penfields, either later this year or the start of next year. Um, but yeah, please do consider uh, whether you're able to get along to one of those. Uh, the other exciting thing to mention is that, um, well, our home groups, our midweek home groups run fortnightly. So it's every other week. And we are actually going to be also launching a women's group in the alternate weeks. So on the weeks where we don't have midweek, we don't have our groups, there's going to be a women's group starting called Women at the Well. Check it out. Women at the Well. Uh, That's going to be led by Ruth Cashmore-Jones. Um, I'm sure she'll share more about that, but she's using material by a lady called Stacy Eldridge, who's John Eldridge's wife. Really good stuff. I've had a look at it myself, and that's starting on Thursday, the 14th of October, and you can find the sign-up details for that on the website. If you just click the events page on the website, it's all there, and you can book in. It's free for you ladies. Blokes, I know it sounds exciting, but I must ask you to desist and not sign up, especially you, Mike. Um, And so it's a ladies thing, but yes, it will bless you. So check it out. If you want to ask more questions about that, I'm sure Ruth would be happy to answer those. Fantastic. Also, I just need to draw your attention to something which was given to me today by a wonderful friend, Claire Smirrell. Claire and Dave, back from America. So good to see you guys. And Claire knows me. Claire has managed throughout the years to buy me gifts that just tie in so well with my theology. It's incredible. So, so far I've been bought a Lego Martin Luther, which sits proudly on my desk. I have one of those kind of wobblehead models of Charles Spurgeon. He sits up on my bookshelf. And now I've got Reformed Roasters Coffee. Coffee that chooses you. Yeah. Total depravity blend because men love the dark roast. (laughs) It's brilliant. Oh, how corrupted was I who loved darkness as black as this roast. Being now saved by Christ, in him alone I boast. Hallelujah. Masterfully roasted to the glory of the Most High. Praise the Lord. Maybe I will, I'll grind some of this up and we can have it next Sunday at HCC. The dark roast. Of course, uh, yeah, 
we all know. We all know that once we were that way, but now the Lord Jesus has transformed this heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Praise God. I just wanted to share that with you because it's awesome. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Daniel 2. I've only got 40 minutes, so I'm going to try my very best to, uh, to get there. Father, as we open up your word today, we are praying, Lord, that you would open our hearts. We recognize that this scripture isn't just a historical text. It's not just like any other piece of writing that we might study. We don't study it just to feed our minds, but we read it because we understand that this word is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the, di the division of soul and spirit. And so, Lord, as we come today to your word, we pray that you would quicken our spirits. We pray that you would supernaturally begin to open our ears to hear what you're saying through this word. And Lord, today we are going to be looking back into the distant past, but also forward into events that have yet to come. And Lord, we pray that you would sturdy us in our faith as we hear this word today to become more encouraged than we've ever been before in the name of Jesus Christ, to be steadfast in hope, to be full of the peace that surpasses understanding and the joy that will last forever. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. So today we are um, arriving at our second uh, session in our study through the book of Daniel. And as I said just briefly then, we're going to be doing some time travel today. You're ready for doing some time travel? You know, I, I love one of my favorite films growing up was the Back to the Future movies. And I'm ready to get inside the DeLorean and start scrolling through some numbers. So we're going to be going back into the deep past, roughly 2,600 years ago, to the land of Shinar and the city of Babylon. I've got a map. I'm just going to ask um, our, our good friend to pop up quickly. Now, I'm sorry the screen is small, um, but I've done my best with what we've got. But this is the land of Shinar here. You can see it in green. And for reference, this is the Mediterranean Sea in the uh, west uh, and you can see here if you look very closely the Jordan River that bit of green there and we've got here is the Sea of Galilee right down there is the Dead Sea and round about uh, here-ish would be Jerusalem okay and then way way over in the east we've got Babylon the city of Babylon which was situated on the Euphrates River is one of the oldest civilizations in the world it's in modern-day Iraq. And to the north, we have the city of Nineveh, um, which is today uh, the city of Mosul. Uh, Nineveh was based there. That was the empire of the Assyrians, who were very savage uh, people with a brutal army. You might remember the, the king Sennacherib in the Old Testament. He was an Assyrian. And down here, we have the city of Babylon, which was one of the largest and richest cities in the ancient world. So we're going back to this land, the, the, the ancient land of Babylon in the Levant along the Euphrates River 2,600 years ago, which is where the kingdom of Judea had been led into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're also going to be looking forwards because that's where this chapter takes us. We're going to be looking forwards to events that have not yet happened to the end times into the things 
which have been set in stone, they are just as certain as the things which have passed before. They have been set in stone by the certain and unchanging sovereign decree of God. So we're going to be looking forward to some of those events because this is where we travel together today. And as we look both to the past and the future, I want for us as a church to be mindful. I want for us to be mindful of our present moment in history. I want for us to be mindful of the place in time that we currently occupy. And all of its uncertainty, all of its turmoil, all of its change. I want for us to be thinking of this present moment. I want for you to see that here in this ancient piece of literature, Daniel chapter 2, there is a timeless truth. There is a message of hope for us to grasp in this present moment today. And I want you to see that what God revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar 2,600 years ago is still every bit as true today. And it applies not just to his governmental system, but to every human governmental system on the earth today, just as it did back then in that time. I want for you to see also, as we look back and also forwards into deep time, that God's purposes are inexorably being worked out. They are being worked out in our world, in the world of men, and they are being worked out today, in our time too. I want to tell you there's a reason why so many in this world, and indeed so many who profess the name of Christ, are fearful and hopeless in these times. There's a reason for it, I believe. At least I think I could identify one of the contributing factors to why it is that so many feel this way. I think it's partly because they don't believe the message of Daniel chapter 2. That's why I believe so many in this world are fearful and hopeless today. When faced with what we're faced with, I believe it is because they don't believe the message of Daniel chapter 2. They don't believe that God is sovereign. They don't believe that He is the one who raises up rulers and governments and that He is the one that brings them down again. They don't believe in a God who is in control at this very present moment. They don't believe in the God of Daniel. And so what they do believe is that they're at the mercy of chance. They're at the mercy of random chance events. They're at the mercy and the whim of the devil and of sinful humanity. That's a scary prospect. If we believe that God is not sovereign, he, he cannot affect events on earth, then guess what? We are at the mercy of random chance. And indeed, the God who's preached across many pulpits in our world today, particularly in this nation, particularly in the West, is a God who's nothing like the God of Daniel chapter 2. The God of pop Christianity is ultimately a God who is trying his utmost. He's trying his best to get his will done. But ultimately, he's at the mercy of the sovereign will of man. You might look at me and think, stop being so sensationalist. That's not true. Well, let me tell you, I've been around for a while. I might look a bit fresh-faced. <laughs> 
But I've been around the block a few times. And I can tell you this, I've had a man stand up and preach in front of me and many others. And he said this, God can't do anything without your permission. Sadly, that God is an idol. That's not the God of the Bible. In fact, there's one popular preacher who recently pronounced that God can't even override your unbelief. Let me tell you today, brothers and sisters, if God can't override anybody's unbelief, then nobody will be saved. Nobody will be saved because you certainly can't override your unbelief. (laughs) The Bible says that the natural man does what? Receiveth not the things of the Spirit, nor is he what? Able to do so. There's an issue of capacity. It's not that we don't have free will. It's that that will is constrained by something called sin. And so all we will freely choose to do in following our heart is ultimately sin. And so many pastors today have forgotten this. And they're preaching a God who is up there simply trying his best. But constantly being foiled by the mighty, sovereign, efficacious will of the pygmies that he created. This is not the God of Daniel. This is a worthless idol, brothers and sisters. And this God, this powerless God, isn't a God that can give you hope, especially in troubled times like we're experiencing in the world today. If this book tells us anything, if the book of Daniel has told us anything at all, it's about Yahweh, it's that he is sovereign, that he is king. That's what that means. And when a king rules, guess what? The king gets done what he needs to get done. He rules over all the affairs of heaven and all the affairs of mankind. He's in control. And you think, well, why would that bring comfort to Daniel and his fellow captives? Well, as Bucky explained last time, Daniel and his friends have already seen their holy city, Jerusalem, ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. They've seen the precious temple of God looted and many of its artifacts carried off to Babylon and placed in the temple of an idol. They have been humiliated. In fact, it's possible to make an inference that even Daniel and his friends have been castrated by Nebuchadnezzar and his servants. They have been humiliated. How in the world could the revelation of God's sovereignty and control over the events bring those, bring those men comfort? Well, I believe that this message of the sovereignty of God over those things to Daniel and his friends would have meant that nothing they'd experienced was purposeless. Nothing they had gone through was simply random chance. But all of it was being utilized All of it had a purpose in God's ultimate plan of redemption for his people. So let's take a look and see how that is. Let's look at Daniel chapter 2 together. So let's read this. I'm in the ESV today. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. 
The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, not a man who knew God, has had dreams which have troubled him deeply to the point that he stops sleeping. Have you ever had a dream so scary that it actually stopped you from going to sleep? That's the kind of dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had. It should be noted right here at the outset that God later reveals himself through the interpretation of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Why is that of any importance? Well, it's simply to show that God speaks to global leaders through dreams. God speaks to global leaders. God speaks to people through dreams. And those people are not always Christians. Isn't that interesting? There's no reason for us to think that that isn't still happening on some level today. That God may speak to a world leader, to the president, to the prime minister through a dream. Isn't that incredible? In fact, there's a story, a bit of an urban myth about Winston Churchill. That when he was still a teenager, he had a dream that he was going to protect and save the city of London. And this came out apparently while he's having a conversation with a friend who was asking him, Winnie, what do you think you'll do when you grow up? Will you go into politics like your dad? And he said, I don't know, but I've had a dream that I'm going to be the savior of London. And his friend laughed it off. But decades later, it was Churchill, wasn't it, who led England through some of her darkest moments in the Blitz. So what can we learn here, church? Well, I think it's important that we remember especially as we're in this season of fasting and praying, to continually pray for our leaders, for the government, that God might reveal himself to them in a similar manner. Nothing is beyond God. He can do all things, amen? Whether we we agree with the politicians' uh, decrees or not, we're still called to pray for them, and God may still speak to them. Let's continue, verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king, Now, in here, in your Bible, you might have in Aramaic. Now, that quite possibly means that the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, but most scholars believe that those two words, in Aramaic, are basically just letting you know that the language in the original text has now shifted from Hebrew to Aramaic. And it stays in Aramaic all the way through until chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 2 to chapter 7 are all in Aramaic, it's not Hebrew which is quite interesting, and then it switches back again to Hebrew. little bit of information for you anyway. In Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, There is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall show you. You can show me its interpretation. 
The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing which the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Wow. Severe. King Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to remember, Christians, when we study the Bible, we're studying a history book. This is not make-believe. King Neb is a real man uh, known as King Nebuchadnezzar II in history books. This guy existed. And what we know, both from Scripture and from history, is that this was both a prodigious ruler, a successful king, but also a tyrant. King Nebuchadnezzar is undoubtedly a tyrant. History records that for us, as does the Bible. He was a man of extremes. He was decisive, yes. He was confident, yes. He was bold, but he was also cruel, arrogant, and vicious. You know, one of the, uh, one of the ways that the Babylonian kingdoms and the Medes and Persians used to torture people before crucifixion came along was a torture called scaphe. And it's gross. Let me tell you about it for a second. Just to illustrate how horrible some of these guys were. What they would do was they would hollow out a boat and then they would make a lid for the boat. They'd hollow out another piece of wood. And what they would do is they would put their poor victim inside this hollowed out boat. And then they would seal the person in there with just their head and their arms and their legs poking out. They'd seal them in, put a lid on that boat. And then they would feed them very rich food. And they'd leave them inside that hollowed out boat. And what would happen was, of course, the rich food would have to come out. And as it did, the maggots and the flies would get involved. And eventually, the poor victim would be eaten alive inside the hollowed out boat. This was their fun. How horrendous is that? So we're not talking about nice people here. We're talking about a tyrant. Okay? King Neb very severe man. So we've got good reason to believe that when he says he's going to tear his own wise men limb from limb, that he's actually going to do it. And because the magicians, the soothsayers, and these Chaldeans were unable to tell King Neb his dream, and they admit that no human is able to do so, only the gods, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage, we're told. He issues a decree that all the wise men of Babylon, including Daniel and his friends, all of them should be killed. The king appoints a man called Arioch to carry out this degree, uh, decree, rather, and off he goes to find Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now at this point, it must have seemed to Daniel and his friends like their fate was sealed. It isn't just that Neb's flown into a rage, he's actually issued a decree. He's even gone and appointed the man to carry out his decree. It seems like the horse has bolted. The assassins have been sent out, but... I want for us to notice Daniel's response. Does despair set in? Does Daniel run into hiding? Or does he begin to slander the king and attempt to gather a rebellion amongst the wise men? The answer is no. The answer is no. This is incredible. This is such an unfair decree, such an unfair ruling. But Daniel doesn't question its severity. I want you to catch that. He just questions its haste. He 
He doesn't say, this is a disgusting decree of the king. We've done nothing wrong. He says, why does the king want to be so hasty about this? We read from verse 13 to 16. So the decree went out. The wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. How often as Christians do we need prudence and discretion in the face of injustice? He replies with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made known the matter to Daniel. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So what can we learn from Daniel's response here in these times that we live in? When unjust decrees come from our government or other governments, brothers and sisters, what shall our response be? What shall our response be in our hearts and in the way we conduct ourselves? I want to ask us, I don't know the answer fully, but I'm going to ask this question. How might we seek to honor God in the way that we behave when bad news comes? We've certainly had a lot of bad news in the last 19 months, haven't we? What will our response be? How do we honor God in these situations? And Daniel, because of his favor with the king, he enters into the king. He asks for him to set an appointment whereby he can show Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. I want you to catch this. This is incredible. Why is it incredible? Because Daniel doesn't know the interpretation at this point. Daniel doesn't even know what the dream is at this point. Yet he's so confident. He's so confident that God's going to come through for him that he's happy for the king to name the time at which Daniel's going to go in and give the interpretation. Isn't that amazing? How confident are we in times of trial that God's going to come through for us? Time and time again, Daniel and his friends demonstrate this unshakable faith in God's goodness, in God's power to save them in the face of dire circumstances. I want you to listen to the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 4. And this is just about as they're, they're about to be thrown into a furnace for not bowing down and worshiping the golden image. Listen to this. Now, verse 15. Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, they had bagpipes then, wow, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen to that. Our God is able to deliver us. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods. I think it's Matt Chandler who's pointed this out before. That needs to be our posture. 
Whenever we come up against adverse events, when we come up against trials, maybe when we're faced with an impossibility, when a friend has a terrible disease, or we're going in to pray for somebody to be healed of cancer, our God is able. Amen? Our God will heal. But even if he doesn't, we'll still worship him. We'll still glorify him. Isn't that incredible? Now Daniel consults these three men at this moment after going in to see the king and he asks for them to pray. He asks for God's mercy and deliverance from the situation. We read in verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's their Hebrew names, his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and now have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. This really is the centerpiece of this whole chapter. You see, the whole of Daniel 2 is written in what we call a chiastic style. That just means it's symmetrical. Okay, it's symmetrical. You've got parts, uh, number one, where Nebuchadnezzar calls in his wise man at the start. And then at the end, you've got the parallel with Nebuchadnezzar and just Daniel. And right in the middle of this pyramidal sort of symmetrical structure, you've got this passage about God revealing the dream to Daniel. So this really is the meat of the chapter right here. Yes, there's some really interesting stuff at the end about the future and about the end times, but I want you to draw from this particular passage because this is the centerpiece right here. And it is this. It's this. It's here we find that hope. It's here we find the reason why we can have hope in 2021. It's that God is sovereign over all the earth, that he raises up kings, as Daniel says, and he takes them away again. Why does he do that? For his own purposes. Secondly, it's that all wisdom and knowledge is God's. All of it. So that pertains to, yes, wisdom and knowledge about himself, the scriptures, the Bible, which tells us about Jesus, the wisdom and knowledge that concerns God, The Bible actually says when we look at nature, when we look at science, God is revealed in a particular way. It means any kind of wisdom or knowledge. All of it is given by God at the precise moment and to the person that he has chosen. So that person that teaches you at university, all of those amazing things about the particular discipline that you're involved in, they're not a Christian, right? They don't believe in God. They don't believe God gave them that wisdom and understanding, but the Bible says, yes, he did. He chooses 
to whom he gives wisdom and knowledge. And that's why you can have people who completely deny the existence of God, yet can still teach you correct things about the way that nature functions. That is because God has chosen in his wisdom to give some knowledge and some light to people who reject him. And that is in his interest to do so. He is God, not us. He chooses to whom he will give wisdom and knowledge for his own purposes. He raises up kings. He rules over them. And Daniel sees that even though this king Nebuchadnezzar, who has done terrible things to him, to his friends, to God's people, even though he's brought persecution upon them, it was his own God who raised him up. And God is in control of him. And God will remove him when he sees fit. Isn't that good news? I want you to know that the government we have today was raised up by God. God put them in the place. It's the same in the United States. Whether you believe in skullduggery happening in the voting process or not, the fact remains that God appointed those individuals to govern over these nations at this particular time. And that gives me comfort. I am not at the whim of tyrants. Though they may rule for a season, though they may persecute me, though they may bring great trial to the church of Christ, I know that they will only bring that trial for as long as my God lets them. And there shall be a reckoning one day. This is good news. This brought hope to Daniel in that moment. Every governmental system in the world today, and indeed every governmental system throughout the epochs of time, has been raised up by God and will ultimately be brought down by God. No matter how evil and despotic a ruler may be, they are just a pawn in God's hand. They are just a piece on his chessboard, and they are only in power for as long as God permits. Amen? Even the evil acts that Nebuchadnezzar did were used for good towards God's people. Nebuchadnezzar and indeed the Assyrians, the Bible tells us specifically, they were raised up by God to punish the sins of Israel. Did you know that? I don't know if you know that, but read Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10 is all about a wicked king who comes and sacks Jerusalem. And God is saying, this king thinks that he's doing these acts for his own greatness. This king thinks, how powerful am I? I'm going to go and show Yahweh who's boss. But he says, he doesn't realize he is just the axe in my hand. I'm just using him to punish the sinful people of Israel. And when I'm done with this wicked king, I'm going to throw him aside and I'm going to punish him for what he's done. It's mind-blowing. It blows your mind. I don't know how many of you have thought about this before of how God governs the affairs of mankind, but he does. And he uses broken people. I mean, he doesn't have any other kinds of people to use, does he? I don't know about you, but God governs over every governmental system in the world. Now, I want to look quickly in the last 10 minutes at the dream itself, because this is very interesting. From verse 24, it reads like this. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. 
Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste. You can tell Ariok doesn't really want to kill Daniel. He doesn't really want to have all this blood on his hands. He rushes Daniel in there, brings him before the king and says to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay there in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the other living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. I don't know if you could just pop the image of the statue up there. This is what the image looked like. Behold, a great image or a statue, as some translations have it. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. And a kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king. What shall be after this? The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. We've got to be careful when we read this not to push the interpretation further than is warranted. That's true. But the dream is prophetic. It's apocalyptic. It reveals to us what's going to happen in the end times. It's one of the most important passages in the Bible concerning the end times. And it interlinks really quite amazingly with other passages like Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13. This passage of scripture, therefore, is telling us the following, okay? It's telling us the following, that four earthly kingdoms will be given power to rule on the earth. It also tells us that these four earthly kingdoms come one after the other. They succeed one another. They are all part of the same structure. The image of man, the statue, shows that they are all the same in one respect. And that respect is that they are all kingdoms of men. They are all forms of human government. That's why the statue is a man. These four earthly kingdoms are also represented by different metals. I don't know if you caught that. Different metals. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron, which is ultimately mixed with this clay at the feet. And the metals decrease in value, don't they? From the head down to the toes. But they also increase in strength as they, head, as they head down towards the feet. Where ultimately there's this weakness, this mixing of iron and clay. And it's at the feet where the statue is struck by a stone, which we're told has been cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. And the, stro- the stone destroys the statue entirely. And from it grows a mountain which endures forever. It covers the whole earth. This is interesting, isn't it? Now, we know who's represented by the head because Daniel tells us. He tells us, it's you, king. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. It represents King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar's been appointed by God. Now, we can speculate as to why his kingdom was represented by gold, and there are lots of people who do. But because we're not specifically told why Babylon is represented by gold here, I'm going to leave it for today and we'll move on. Secondly, we know that it was the Medo-Persian Empire led by Darius, Cyrus the Great and ultimately Xerxes that took on the empire of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar and his predecessors left. And so the two arms, the silver chest represented here is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians and some speculate that the two arms represent Media and Persia. The Medo-Persians ruled for several hundred years and had great battles with the Greeks. You can watch the film 300 to see one of those or at least an artist's impression of that. The Medo-Persians ruled for 700 years, several hundred years rather until the rise of another great empire which did rule the whole earth. How many of you know who that was? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, a Macedonian who, by the time he died at age 33, had conquered all the land from Macedonia and Greece in the west to India in the east. Isn't that incredible? 
died at the age of 33. And this kingdom is represented by the bronze around the stomach and the thighs. That's the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great. Daniel then tells us that there are some iron legs. These iron legs represent a kingdom coming in after the Greeks, which will crush and shatter all things and break them in pieces. The Roman Empire arises pretty much out of nowhere in the second century BC, and it does take on the kingdom of the Greeks. It eclipses the Greek Empire. It went on to rule the civilized world with an iron fist. It stretched all the way from Britain in the north to Egypt in the south, from Spain in the west, right over into modern-day Iraq in the east. The kingdom of iron is usually accepted as being the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. Now the feet and the toes of the empire, we're told, are mixed with clay. And it's at this point here that the stone strikes it. The point on the statue, the feet, represents a moment in history. A moment in history. Now, I think this points to a point in the future. I believe that because what we're told in Daniel 2 is that when the stone strikes the statue, it's utterly destroyed, completely destroyed. And that means, therefore, that there's no remnant of any human government left. It says it's as chaff that's swept away. Now, because we haven't seen and didn't see, indeed, the ultimate shattering of the Roman Empire at the incarnation of Christ or at his crucifixion, I believe that this moment is yet to come. This speaks of something in the future. And so I believe, along with others, that at some point in history, in the future, there will be a revival of sorts of this Roman Empire, of this Roman system of government. I'm not expecting for soldiers to begin marching around with spore written on shields and, and uh, red headdresses. We're not expecting that. It won't look the same. It's going to be mixed with another governmental system, like clay. It's going to look strong. It's going to look similar to the Roman Empire, but it's not going to be as strong. It's not going to be as effective. And what we see here in Daniel 2 is that there are ten toes on the feet. Ten toes. And those ten toes seem to link very closely to the ten horns of the beast in Daniel chapter 7 and also with the beast of Revelation 13. And many believe that these ten toes represent ten kings. The ten kings that will be ruling at the time when the kingdom of God is fully consummated as we believe the kingdom of God is here, amen, now, but also not yet. And at the time of these ten rulers, we are told in Daniel 7 that the Antichrist will arise. We hear in Daniel 7, which we'll get to eventually, of three horns being replaced by the little horn who utters blasphemies against God before being utterly destroyed by the Lamb, who is also the stone that we see in Daniel chapter 2. I hope you're sticking with me here. All that we can learn from this is this. None of us know the exact time when these things will happen, but what we can know is that the stage is being set. The stage is being set right now. The curtain call is coming. We're in the final moments of human history in this age. If John the Apostle could write in his book that we're in the last days and that was 2,000 years ago, 
We can be confident we're in the last days now. None of us knows the precise moment when these things will actually happen, but we do know that the stone has already been cut from the mountain. That's Christ. That's his kingdom. He's already come into the world, and that stone is heading towards the feet of the statue as we speak. Jesus says in Matthew 21, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The kingdom is now, but also yet to come. The stone is tumbling towards the statue as we speak. So what can we take from Daniel 2? We can take this, that as formidable and strong as earthly governments may be, they are temporary. They will pass away. They have been appointed by God in terms of leadership and they're marked out in terms of how they can rule by God. Eventually, every form of human government will end and God's kingdom will be set up in its place. Hallelujah. He will rule forever. And what he says is that you will reign with him as his sons and daughters. And he will reign in love, in righteousness, and in peace over all his people. Now that's good news if you've lived under a tyrannical form of government. I want to ask, are you ready for that moment? Are you readying yourself that Christ may return imminently? Is it on your mind? Do you think about it? The saints 2,000 years ago did. They did think about this a lot. And I worry that today many of us, we don't. We're worried about the football that's on tomorrow or what we'll eat tonight. You know, but the early saints, they thought about these things. And I wonder, how much good would it do us if we began to meditate on the same things? I want for us to remember, finally, church, that whatever comes our way in the coming months, the end of 2021, and indeed the beginning of 2022, that God is in control. God is in control. God is sovereign. And nothing can happen to you apart from what God decrees. Nothing. I want for us to trust in him just like Daniel did. I want for us to remember that our government has been put in place by God for his own purposes. Let's remember also that we as Christians are emissaries. We are envoys of a higher governmental system. We are subjects of God's kingdom. And let's try as best we can to be good ambassadors for Christ at this time. Let's not forget to pray for our leaders whether we agree with them or not. And let's remember that someday, sooner or later, that stone is going to hit the bottom of the statue. And in the twinkling of an eye, as Garth told me last week, everything will be changed and will be in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Just invite Mike back up again. Father God, we thank you for your revelation through scripture. And we thank you that a day is coming when you will come on the clouds and every eye will see you. Every tongue will confess that you are God. And our prayer is that we be ready for that day. That we would forsake any sin that easily besets. Anything that we know we'd be ashamed of in that day, we pray we'd let go of it now. And I ask you right now as you're listening to this prayer, that the Holy Spirit, you'd invite him in to highlight anything in your life that needs to get gone before that day. I ask you to confess it right now and, and, and commit to the Holy Ghost to let go of whatever sin it is that you're still hanging on to. And I pray, Lord, that you would continually purify us as we move towards this momentous day in history. 
when you shall come and you shall gather your people to yourself. We pray that if there's anybody listening today who doesn't yet count themselves among the Lord's sheep, that your eyes would be opened, that your heart would be opened to receive him as your king today. We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.